so recommended more and more and more that understanding this and this. But the Hebrew concept of seeking truth wasn't just something undertaken in the mind to gain an intellectual understanding, particularly in theology. It was also something that involved the heart to gain an experiential knowledge and understanding. We're looking at a verse from Isaiah. Isaiah himself was impacted when he had a true vision, a real vision of God. In Isaiah 6, verse 5, we read, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The first thing God did with Isaiah was give him a vision glory and his power. And as Isaiah observes the majesty of God, his immediate reaction is to see himself in a different light. But he needed that vision of God before he was able to do that. Isaiah realized how far he fallen from that wondrous image of Christ. I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. But notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, woe is me, I am worthless. Scripture never says that man is worthless. In fact, Jesus did the opposite. He said, what a pity for a man to gain the whole world and lose himself. This is how valuable each one of us is to God. Even the world with all its kingdoms, its glory and its riches, isn't worth the life of a single individual. Isaiah's experience shows us that it's not enough to know that the world, the world is full of evil. And it's also that God is good. Isaiah saw the unfathomable difference between God and man. And that gives us a clue as to where we should be so. When we're seeking an accurate vision of God and his purposes, I think we need to start by breaking ourselves of the heart. We're thinking about God, our Creator, in the same way we think about ourselves, His creatures. The Apostle John tells us, God is love. But God's love is not the same as our love. Our love changes because we are created things. Our love grows hot and cold. You've only got to look at the broken relationship the higher most words to realize what is going on there. God's love can't grow. It can't diminish. It can't cease to be. It's always the same. His love is the way God is. So when he loves, he's simply being himself. When he says, my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. He's telling us something about himself. We can define God's love like this. God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. The self-giving love of the Trinity finds clear expression in God's relationship with mankind and particularly sinful man. That's the best known verse in Scripture. John 3.16.
loves the unlovable. Jesus loved those who finished the last. Those who were despised, ugly, poor, sick, powerless, ignored, and rejected. Can we do that? Do we do that? Many earnest Christians have become discouraged by the absence of religious emotion and wonder whether they have lost the way of something. obeying them. Obedience is key. Always firmly willing to love God. I believe we can see a wonderful change 
in our whole inward life by doing this. Feelings become less erratic, emotions more disciplined and directed. We'll want to start meeting some needs around us to move out. Any moving with God is a continual life of activity with God. Christianity gave the Greek word agape, new meaning. Outside the New Testament, it rarely occurs in existing Greek manuscripts of the period. Agape describes the unconditional love God has for the world. It's an undefeatable benevolence, an unconquerable goodwill that always seeks the highest good for the other person, no matter what he does. Practicing this kind of love is a clear reflection of our relationship with God. But this will also draw us closer to God. Read King David's Psalm 15. It's all about who can abide with God. And what he describes is our relationship with our neighbours. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul described it like this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Look at the definition of God's love again. God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. If we applied that definition to our own lives, what would it look like? No prizes for guessing what I think it would look like. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. It describes eight things that God, that love does and eight things that love does not do. And it finishes by saying, love never fails. It's the one thing that lasts into eternity. Do those three words, love never fails, do they give me a vision of how God's unfailing love provides eternal assurance? Isaiah 54 verse 10 that I'm looking at speaks of the security we can feel in our relationship with God because he vows that there will never be any change in his attitude towards us. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. This amazing promise is confirmed in Romans chapter 8. Paul writes, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God is for us, if, do you think he is? There are four Greek words for if. And the translation for this one is, if God is for us, and he is, who's going to be against us? When it came to the following verses, 33 and 34, I think Paul had a court of law in mind. Jesus had many enemies, accusers who tried all sorts of tricks to try to get him to say or do something that would get him tried and condemned. We find one example in John chapter 8. Jesus is teaching many people in the temple courts at dawn. Teachers of the law and the Pharisees drag in a woman who had been caught in adultery. Do you know the first thing that is interesting there is you can't commit adultery by yourself. But only one person is dragged in. Strange. What about the other offender? Obviously, some provision had been made for the man to escape. Verse 6 confirms the incident is obviously staged to trap Jesus. But the accusers, they've been especially eager to humiliate this woman. She's made to stand before the large crowd while they ask Jesus. In the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. I've often wondered what he wrote on the ground with his finger. Maybe it was some of those other commandments that all men have broken. When they kept on asking him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Can you imagine how that woman felt? Absolutely terrified. She must have been trembling, probably with her eyes closed, waiting in terror for that first stone, stone to, or rock to smash against her, cruelly maiming her long before the eventual release of death. But after a while, she opens her eyes and looks up. And they're all gone. The men have all gone, shamed by Jesus' challenge to their own sinful lives. Jesus straightened up and asked a woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? I wonder if Jesus had a bit of a wry smile on his face when he asked her that. And with surprised relief, the woman replies, No one, sir. Something of that same air of surprised relief pervades this closing section of Romans chapter 8. We look around to see who's condemned us. 
and discover they're all wrong. Four times the question is asked, and each time the implied answer is resounding. Those of us who put our faith in Jesus, we too have an enemy, the accuser of our brethren. He's eager to humiliate, to shame and condemn us. He comes to kill, steal and destroy. Have you ever feared potential humiliation or shame or pain? Does the accuser ever remind you of something that you've done, something that you failed to do perhaps, so that you feel unworthy of God's love? Or you're unable to go to him in your time of need? If so, then look again at what God has done. Look again at what the Messiah has done. Look again at what he's still doing, interceding for us even as I speak tonight. Look around at the many things that threaten to separate you from the all-powerful love that reaches out to you through the cross and resurrection. Then learn that they are all beaten foes. They're defeated. Ban, do you want to come up, please? I believe that the life of that woman caught in adultery changed dramatically from that point onwards. Because she had seen, she had experienced the life-saving love and grace of the Saviour. And that changes you. If you've experienced that, nothing, absolutely nothing will ever be able to separate you from the love of God. His love is wholehearted. It's unconditional. And it's continual. Listen to some of the names that Jesus is called in Scripture. He's a sure foundation. He's our stability. A nail fastened in a secure, a sure place. He's our security. My rock. He's our refuge. The Lord of peace, our comfort. The lifter up of our head. He's our confidence. The express image of the Father. He's our reality. The propitiation for our sins. Jesus is our forgiveness. The way, the truth, and the life. He's our purpose. The captain of the host of the Lord. He's our victory. The Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is our totality. We should write all these truths on the living tablets of our heart. We should learn to dance and sing about the victory, shout about the victory of God. But we also need to ponder these truths more slowly to fully digest the implications. They are clear, a clear argument for our eternal assurance. Justification by faith is our assurance. The God who has called us in the gospel has declared that we are members of his family and he will never let us go. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you.